Hey guys, welcome to episode 279 of Built on Passion. I'm your host, Matt Delabono, and this week we have on Pierre-Andrea Quarta, founder of Rebo Bottle. Rebo Bottle makes a smart water bottle that doesn't just help you stay on your hydration game, it's also designed to help actively remove plastic waste from natural areas. Water bottles are fairly simple in and of themselves, but the intricacies behind Rebo Bottle are absolutely incredible. It all started with Pierre wanting to do more to help remove plastic from the environment. His past experience working as a brand manager for one of the world's most widely known name brands gave him an opportunity not only to sharpen his knives to build a brand, but also expose him to a newfound passion, sustainability, and coming up with progressive practices to support it. Ultimately, Pierre wanted to create a product to help push the world towards a much more sustainable future, and focusing on something that everyone interacted with was the perfect starting point. Rebo Bottle's Smart Bottle isn't just a container for H2O, it's designed to help encourage people to stay hydrated, track their water intake, and find and track nearby refill stations all through their app. Unironically, it is very much the future of hydration. On top of making a smart bottle with extremely detailed features, Rebo has developed some interesting strategic partnerships to help actively remove plastic from the environment. What's most remarkable of all is that in creating Rebo Bottle, Pierre is building an extremely unique and progressive brand around a global issue in a way that hasn't really existed yet. In this episode of Built on Passion, Pierre shares what inspired him to dig deeper into sustainability, some of the challenges that came with building Rebo Bottle, and the how and why behind Rebo Bottle. Do you own or do marketing for an outdoor travel, wellness, or fitness product company? If you enjoy listening to our podcast Built on Passion, have a brand of your own, and are interested in joining one of Red Yeti's upcoming giveaways, we'd love to have you. Our giveaway campaigns are a great way for you to gain exposure and build a targeted audience of potential customers. We've worked with hundreds of brands over the years, chances are you've probably seen our giveaways, and we've put together giveaways related to the outdoor fitness, wellness, and health spaces. If you're interested in partnering or joining one of our giveaways, just message us on Instagram. Our handle is at Ready Yeti. That's R-E-D-D-Y-Y-E-T-I. Just tell us you'd like to join one of our upcoming giveaways and someone from our team will be in touch. Remember, just message us on Instagram at Ready Yeti. That's R-E-D-D-Y-Y-E-T-I. All right, all right. Well, hang on one second before we actually jump into this episode. I just wanted to say thank you. Really, thank you for supporting everything we're trying to do. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for being engaged, being curious, and just being there supporting the show. We work really hard to put together a really interesting show and have on guests that are truly doing something progressive, interesting, and building something truly special. If you are looking for a way to show your support and help us continue to do what we are doing, one of the biggest things you could do, and I know it seems like a really small thing, but is leave a review. Plus, it helps inform other people what your experience of this podcast has been like. So that's basically it. I just wanted to say a big old thank you to you, the listener. Please leave a review. It is extremely helpful. And uh, you look great. And that's it. Bye. Pierre, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Very happy to be here. Yeah, I always feel like it's a, a weird, abrupt, like rolling into actually, okay, we're going to do this now. We're going to press the record button. I guess to start to lay down the groundwork, who are you and what do you do? So I am a 35-year-old 
Italian guy who lives in Switzerland, who spent a lot of years in a corporate life in a big company called Procter & Gamble. And then about three years ago, decided to kind of change lifestyle and start his own company. And he did that because of the experience that I had at P&G, where I did a lot of work in sustainability. And I was very inspired by being able to you know, do business while having a positive impact on the planet. And so that led me to start Rebo, which is a reinvented bottle that I'm going to tell you more about. But, you know, it really aims to be a business, which is a viable business that is actually driving a significant impact by preventing plastic, but also collecting plastic waste. It's interesting. When we first came across your brand, you know, there's a lot of water bottle companies out there. And, you know, first I saw like, oh, water bottle, you know, always look a little more. And I kind of saw that, oh, it's a smart water bottle, way more interesting than just your average water bottle. And then I dug a little deeper and saw what you guys were actually doing, you know, what the product was built on, the idea of actually helping collect plastic. And it kind of blew my mind. It's the first time I've ever heard anything or seen anything really like this. How did you come up with this idea? What was the jumping off point to really get started with uh, Rebo Bottle? Well, first, thank you for that. Yes, you're right. We kind of came late to the party. And so when you do that, you either come in with something differentiated trying to turn the late arrival into a late mover advantage, or you're going to have a really hard time into that market. And so in my case, what happened is when I was working in PNG, I did, a, as I mentioned before, some work in sustainability. And, and I developed some projects and they were trying to get around the solution, the situation with plastic waste. I launched a bottle of shampoo made of plastic collected in the ocean, which was the first ever product announced at the World Economic Forum, a winner of the United Nations. But most importantly, something which really changed PNG in the way it was doing sustainability. And that really made me proud, but also made me aware. On one hand, the need to do something around plastic waste, but on the other hand, also the desire and opportunity of creating a business that, that could have impact. And so studying the problem of plastic waste, I realized how water bottles, plastic water bottles, single-use plastic water bottles were one of the main causes of this problem of plastic waste. Imagine that we use a million plastic water bottles every single minute. And there is a big percentage of those ending up in the ocean. So with that in mind, I was like, okay, you know, launching a water bottle brand, a durable water bottle brand may be a, a good idea. But like you said, there is many. And so their intuition was every time somebody's using a water bottle, they're not using a single, you know, a disposable one. And so because of that, there is some value in the action of choosing to use a durable solution versus a disposable one. And my intuition was there must be a way of capturing that value. And so that's where we were like, okay, what if we developed a stainless steel durable bottle with a smart technology that not only does what smart water bottles do today, which is measure your water intake, give you a hydration plan, and help you to stay hydrated, but also monitor the plastic savings which are associated with the use of the bottle and transform that into a credit, into a certificate that can then fund the collection of plastic waste. And so we created this very unique kind of ecosystem and business model for which we're able to fund the collection of one bottle of plastic waste for every bottle that people are drinking with, with our Rebo. So it seems like kind of a, a big undertaking because you have the actual product, which you're developing and doing product development for. That in itself can be a challenge between manufacturing, design, all those different pieces. But how did you build the sustainable element to it. I guess the incentivized program to help people people drink. And I, even before we get into that, how does that work between the smart water bottle and collecting plastic? 
Yeah. So let me explain very quickly how the bottle works. The bottle, you know, as a stainless steel body, as a smart cap, it's a flip cap. So you push on the bottom, it opens up. And then when it opens, there is kind of a brain that wakes up and says, hey, I'm, I'm open. And then when you close it, it will tell you, okay, just close down. And it will send a laser signal inside the bottle, which will bounce depending on the water level. That info will be sent through Bluetooth to your phone. And the phone has a, an application. We have a iOS application, an Android application, and that will receive information of how much water you're drinking. According to that, you will have a hydration plan created into the app based on your physical characteristics and your lifestyle and activity level, which gets dynamically adjusted. So if you go for a run, it will uh, tell you that you need to drink more to compensate for that. And so thanks to the tech, you're able to track the water you're drinking and see how that is working versus the hydration plan that is created. Now, the plastic saving part works in the following way. Because we know how much water you're drinking, we also know how much plastic you're saving. This is not a one-to-one -one relation, but it's based on a special algorithm that we have developed where we can identify human drinking behaviors, let's say. And so we know more or less when you are drinking from the bottle for real. And there is um, a certification process that we went through for which an external company certifies the use of our bottle and the algorithm to generate the plastic saving that is associated with it. And so thanks to that, there is a credit that gets generated, somewhat similar to what a carbon credit is, if anybody's familiar with it. And that credit has value. And the value which gets extracted, we don't touch any of that. And we use it to fund the collection of plastic waste with a partner that is called Parley for the Ocean, which is a great, actually, New York-based association that really fights for preserving the beauty of the ocean and coordinates a lot of plastic collection activities. When you were putting together that, I guess, the relationship with Parlay for the Ocean, which seems to be, you know, a really important piece, did you know that you wanted to work with them specifically or were you shopping around to see who could, I guess, help put this system together? Yeah. So, you know, I knew this market of plastic collection. I, I don't want to call it a market, but I knew this kind of environment because of my previous job. So I knew there were a few different organizations that were able to do this work. Some did it in a certain way and some others did it in another way. We started to have some other conversations in parallel with Parley for the Ocean. And that conversation was with a big global brand called Adidas. And so Adidas happened to work with Parley. So as we were evaluating different companies to work with, well, Parley was kind of top of the list also because they were working with Adidas. And so it was a great way of bringing all this together. And I mean, something which was, you know, very well connected from all the different ends. And so eventually we decided to work with them. I believe they are an amazing company doing amazing things. And they're really driven by a, a very strong vision. So they wouldn't work with anybody. They would work only with partners that are very like-minded. And they are, very importantly, great communicators. Because when you're doing something like what they're doing, you need to be really good at bringing that message. And so... We thought that you know they were the perfect partner to work with because of this abilities that they have and because of the impact that they can drive. Yeah, it sounds like it's also great that you had that you know, just the familiarity with these different uh, organizations who are helping to remove plastic. I have to ask, do you have a background in environmental policy or science, or is this something that your career just kind of helped drive you towards? Yeah, no, no background at all. Meaning, I studied business and marketing, so. That's where my career started doing marketing for multinationals. And then I believe a few years ago, in my case, it was around 2016. 
sustainability started to get really high up on the corporate agenda. And so you would have people for the marketing function that would be assigned to work on sustainable matters and, uh, and you know, environmental policy and kind of the sustainable agenda for, for different corporations. And it was my case. So I had a passion for that topic and it happened to be something that I could do within my previous job. And so it's something where, you know, if you have the passion, there is a lot to learn. And so I really got there studying, reading different researches and talking to the right people because there are some very knowledgeable people in the space and kind of caught up. I don't consider myself an expert, but it is a passion area for me and, uh, you know, an area where I even decided to launch a company. So, yeah. I think taking the perspective you have, you're going to be on the fast track to become an expert. I mean, it's one thing to having specifically studied this from the get-go, but you have this robust background in business that I, help, I feel like gives you a better or a different perspective, I should say, on you know how to solve this problem. Because you're, you're coming in from the, oh, okay, I'm used to this. We're experiencing a huge shift in mindset. And you know what can I bring to help, I guess, you know amplify that, that solution? I mean, yes. Sorry, if I can quickly react to that. I mean, I think it's, uh, you said it, it gives me some kind of expertise and it gives me a clear perspective on this. Some people may criticize me because they would say, yeah, but you worked in a big corporation. So how do you want to talk about sustainability when you are in a big corporation? And, you know, my belief is big corporations are a lot of times the big offenders, but they're also the ones that they can drive the change. So if you have really passionate people that are trying to do the right thing within those corporations, they can be those change agents that can drive much more impact than what an activist can actually drive not sitting within a big company. And so that's something that has kind of driven my desire to the sustainability when I was within PNG. But it's also guiding a little bit the way I approach it with Rebo, trying to partner also with bigger companies that can have a bigger impact and can help me to have a bigger impact than if I were just standing on my own with my small startup, you know. I'm glad you mentioned that. I was thinking something similar, you know, I know a lot of people look at big corporations and say, oh, it, they're just greenwashing or, you know, just doing the bare minimum, whatever. On one hand, you know, you're talking about a really big, especially with multinational corporations. It's like moving, a, you know, a small car versus like a tractor trailer. You know, it takes a lot more to create change within a huge organization that's, you know, affecting the entire supply chain of how that organization works. I feel like by you being that positive agent in PNG and wanting to really push for that positive change, seeing how I'm sure red tape can affect really getting the things that you really want to get done accomplished, taking all of that passion, all of that knowledge and putting it towards a smaller company that can be more nimble and really make these quick changes and adjust and adapt way quicker. I feel like that is just like the perfect driver to help you start back from the bottom and like shoot back up to create change. And I guess it seems like you're setting yourself up to create a bigger wave of change with a smaller vehicle. Well, yeah, I think the big difference is when you're in a big corporation and you manage a huge brand, you can make a business decision that can have a huge impact just because you're changing the material you're using on your product or changing a process or whatever it is. In my case, it's harder because I'm a smaller product, but you're right in what you were saying, because I'm trying to get the product to play a role into helping a transition to a greener world. 
And, you know, this transition is really focused on the way we drink. Today, we drink a lot out of plastic water bottles, like single-use plastic water bottles. And the future will have water stations, will have water kiosks, will have refill fountains. And I believe that people will not need to buy single-use plastic water bottles anymore, except in a few places where, you know, it's really hard to get quality water. And so when this happens, you want to be there and you want to help the transition to this by having a bottle that can work in this new ecosystem they can accelerate the transition into this new ecosystem. And so that's a bit of the mentality with which we're thinking about our product. Speaking of water stations, actually, I know that Rebo Bottle can map and show you where the nearest refill station is. How did that idea come into play? Was that part of the plan from the get-go? Is that something that you you kind of dreamed up while you were you know, building Rebo Bottle? What was the build-up there? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't remember exactly when the idea came, but what I can tell you is if you are creating a durable bottle, sometimes the challenge that you're getting is, okay, where do I refill? You know, you may get water home in your office, but then what about elsewhere? And so we thought, well, if we really want to enable people to not have to buy a single-use plastic bottle, then we may help them to find those water fountains. And so we are relying on an external service. So it's not done by us. It's a user-mapped kind of API that we plug into our app, and it's showing about 230,000 fountains worldwide. So these are user-curated, and they get updated relatively regularly. And so, yeah, you know, it can happen to you that you go visiting another city and you just turn on the app and you're like, okay, hey, there is a water fountain just a few steps away and, and I can refill. I feel like it's even better. I mean, since it's user, I guess, user created, you're not just helping to remove plastic from the ocean by drinking. When you refill your bottle and you mark a new station, you're really helping other people, you know, get a drink who might be thirsty and be like, oh man, this is, I have this bottle. I don't want to carry around an empty bottle. I love the concept. It makes sense. Anyone who's ever had a refillable water bottle has been in a situation where they're saying, okay, I finished my water and now what do I do? Well, there you go. Now you have it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. How has this been received by everyone? Is it something that people have been really picking up and getting behind? Have you had to do a lot of education to help people understand what you're trying to do in the bigger picture? Yeah, I think the education is a very important part. If I look back at when the company was created and the product, you know, we started to talk about the product. People were reacting in a different way versus the way they're reacting today and even the way they will react tomorrow, I believe, in the sense that it was much harder for people to understand what the bottle was doing, why it was doing it, and how it was built. But, you know, that is changing with time and people are realizing and they require much less education. They can be much quicker at grasping the concept versus what they needed to do before. So what we did was a crowdfunding campaign in 2019, uh, which went pretty well. We raised, I mean, we pre-sold about a quarter million dollars of, uh, of worth of bottles. And with that, you know, we went on to kind of develop it and really make it happen. And COVID was in between, so it wasn't really easy. And that kind of slowed down the whole process. But eventually we made it. We have a product now. It's on the market. I think it can become much better and it will become much better with time just because we'll understand better how people are using it, what they're liking, what they're not liking. And we know already a few things that we can improve. But, you know, it's a journey. And it's a journey which is giving us a lot of satisfaction because we're getting, you know, great feedback from people. There is companies that are getting behind. There is some other interesting partnership opportunities that we're seeing. So, yeah, you know, we hope it's going to go in the right way. We still have a lot of work to do and a lot of technical work to do, but uh, we'll get there. 
Have you been just around for just two years? Yeah, I would say two years and a half. Oh, man. Those numbers are pretty insane for a crowdfunding campaign. I mean, even by today's standards, I I feel like that's something to be said, even with that. What did you do to run such a successful campaign? So I studied what it meant to run a crowdfunding campaign. And, you know, I was coming from my very naive perspective of, you know, crowdfunding, it's nice. You just put it out there and then it gets viral. And if you're lucky, you're going to get the great numbers. And then I later realized that there was like a playbook and there was a strategy on how to, you know, structure and, and run a crowdfunding campaign. And so I spoke to as many founders as I could, as many people that are run crowdfunding campaigns as I could. And then I, you know, kind of figured out what were the things. So you wanted to create some buzz before launching, creating a bit of a community that was interested in it, do a lot of email marketing at the moment of launching to make sure that you were sold out in a very short time, you know, do some advertising because you want people to know about your product. So do some advertising with a very specialized crowdfunding marketing agency. They can reach the right target, the right audience, because it's, a, it, you know, to be honest, it's a very specific kind of audience, the one buying the crowdfunding. And yeah, you know, and a few other things, then if you put all these together and the product is interesting, of course, then you can reach some nice numbers. Are there any strategies that you'd suggest for anyone who's thinking about starting their own crowdfunding campaign? I mean, like specific beyond the advertising and building a community, is there any like X factor that really helped? Well, I think getting the product right is very important. And so before launching a crowdfunding campaign, we did a bit of uh, what we call smoke testing. So that was about creating a fake website with a fake product that didn't exist. And then we drove traffic by buying some ads just to figure out whether people were you know, interested in it. And they were clicking, they were adding to cart, they were willing to buy, just really to understand, okay, do people care about what I'm trying to build? And by doing that, honestly, we realized a lot of things and we changed a lot of things versus what the initial idea was. And so I think that was really, really helpful to make sure that when we got out to do the crowdfunding, we already had something which was kind of uh, people-proof and consumer-proven in a way. I don't think I've talked to anyone who's done something similar. I feel like that's the... I mean, it's such a uh, safe way to test an idea and actually get like real feedback. I love this way, honestly. I think it's a very, very effective way because the behavior of people doesn't lie. You know, if you ask people questions in a focus group or if you ask them in a survey, in a question or whatever it is, they will tell you, oh, yeah, I would buy this. Oh, yeah, I would do this. You know, anytime there is the, I would, like the kind of future, that means that there may be a lie hidden behind. Whereas if you're putting out a product and you drive people that you don't know on that page and you just observe them and you see whether they're adding to cart and they're actually putting their credit card details to buy, well, that speaks much louder than any, oh, yeah, I would buy this in any questioner. So, it is a, a bit of a painful process just to you know put all this together and make it happen. It can be expensive as well because you need to buy media to write people on the page. But you know it's much less expensive and much less painful than failing <laughs> with launching a product that doesn't have interest from the market. You know, did you get a chance to actually interact with some of the people who are clicking through and adding to cart and all that, or just kind of watch and see? No, I did not. I'm sure there is a way of doing that, but no, I did not. We did do, however, some focus groups afterwards with other people following the learnings that we were getting from the smoke testing, but they were not the same people. So I think it would be really interesting to talk to them and, and get some feedback. But yeah, no, it wasn't the case. Even still, it's amazing how, like, I mean, simple is, is not the perfect word, but I guess straightforward of a 
you know, a platform that you can build and have so much data to really you know, make all these positive changes for what you're doing. That's wild. And there's a lot of analytics that you can get, you know, with heat maps, following the behavior of people, understanding what they're seeing, what they're not seeing. So I'm not a data expert, but I think there is so much insights that you can extract out of data. So even when you're doing a, a like a smoke testing, uh, there is a lot that you can learn just by observing the numbers. And I find that fascinating. And I find it even more fascinating today with the product being out and understanding where we need to optimize and what is working, what is not working. Especially something for what you're building or have built with Reva Bottle, where it's taking a very familiar, very common concept of a water bottle and just driving it even further. And I mean, from my own personal Instagram, social media, wherever, I see ads for water bottles all the time. But I feel like you're able to test out, okay, we're going to introduce this completely new concept, see how people react to it and have all this data. It's fascinating. That's so incredible. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, no, the smoke test concept really got me. I find that super fascinating. And I hope more people will know about it because I think it can just make launching a business much more effective. I also have to say, you know, that was two years and a half ago. So, you know, buying media was a bit different versus today. Tracking people was a bit different versus today. So I'm sure some of the things that I said may need to be revisited with the current media landscape and, and media buying landscape. But I think the essence is still there. And it is, are people getting into the page and buying or trying to buy at least? Yeah. And that's the other interesting thing with that in particular. I feel like it's just an ever-changing landscape, especially now things seem to be changing quicker and quicker, how people interact, how people find new products, ideas, share information. You know, We live in a pretty special time. What have been some roadblocks that you've experienced while building Rebo Bottle? Was it more product-based, more marketing on the marketing side of things? So developing Rebo, we, we had a few roadblocks and I would say they were two-sided. On one hand, it was COVID-related and on the other hand, it was product-technical-related. Uh, and so COVID because we really got into the development of the product right when the pandemic hit. And, you know, we couldn't visit our suppliers. We couldn't quickly review uh, samples. We couldn't just, you know, sit down and try to solve issues. Everything was much, much harder. And we were relying on DHL shipping around some samples and, you know, evaluating them with different team members. And that really was not easy. And still today, it's not easy because we haven't been able to visit our, our supplier ever. And so we've been we've had to rely on video calls and other things. So that was one. And then the other one, I would say, was the technical part. Because like I mentioned before, I studied business. I worked in marketing. So I don't know much about tech. I don't know much about hardware engineering and software engineering. And so our product is very much dependent on these elements. And I do not have a technical co-founder. So in hindsight, that is something that I wouldn't do in the same way. I would definitely look for a technical co-founder when you're trying to to develop a tech product because, you know, I realized quickly that I didn't know what I was doing because the product was, you know, had some implications in terms of electronics, in terms of software, firmware, et cetera, which I just didn't know. And so we had to find somebody that, you know, our first hire, actually, our head of the technology that really helped us in this. We also found an external partner. It was a big American multinational that, you know, came on board with some sweat equity, let's say, supported us with the development. And then eventually we managed. But, you know, before all those things happened, it was, it was a really bumpy road at the beginning, very uphill. 
Yeah, with something that technical, especially anything electronic based, it's hard to do everything. It's impossible to do everything. I feel like having that division of labor and support is helps you go the distance. Were there any particularly big mistakes or specific points that helped you pivot or gave you like a big learning opportunity to help carry you through uh, any roadblocks? Yeah, what I would say, I was very naive at the beginning because I was like, we're not inventing anything in terms of tech. You know, we're using tech which is available and we're just creating a, a special business model around it. You know, smart bottles had been existing, measuring technologies and Bluetooth based technologies had been existing. So I thought, well, you know, that's easy, but no, not at all. And so that was, I would say, the biggest mistake on my side, which was significantly underestimating the development effort required for such a product, even if the technology already existed. And then a challenge that we found and something that you know made it the whole thing harder was sustainability. We were trying to build a product which was 100% sustainable, or at least as much as we could. And so when you get into electronics and you need to develop a sustainable product, you're facing things like self-obsolescence, for which you know products are designed in a way that after a few years, they will stop working or materials or certifications that are just not what you want them to be when you're trying to develop a sustainable product. So, you know, we had to look for a special supplier for a battery because we wanted to be certified in a certain way and we wanted to last it for longer. We had to think about the design of the product in a way that, you know, would be very easy to disassemble and then recycle or upcycle afterwards and so on and so forth. And you know, that added, I would say, an extra layer of complexity to something which was already very complex per se. I honestly, it, it feels like, you know, with that, that's the other thing. When you create something that is meant to be used for forever and, you know, you're creating, that's one thing I noticed when I was looking through Rebo's uh, website is I, I saw the length that you went with your product to make sure every single piece of it was as sustainable as possible, which I know isn't easy because there's always, like you're saying, there's always some sort of you know, extra thing that gets in the way. A lot of it, I feel like it ends up being more expensive when you go the more sustainable route. That's like a common thing that scares people away. So being... I can confirm that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And being able to, you know, really stick by your guns and your message, that speaks volumes. I feel like that is one of the biggest things that you're doing with Rebo Bottle is that, you know, the idea is to help reduce plastic, but you're, you've found every bottleneck in creating a product, well, even if it's a relatively simple concept, you've looked at these bottlenecks for where can we do better and you're actually implementing it. Yeah. I mean, we're doing our best, to be honest, Matt. It's hard to be perfect, especially at the beginning, you know, but we've done whatever we could to be as sustainable as possible. I think we can improve in the future on, uh, you know, enabling you to change spare parts for the bottle, just changing a little piece. And we're not set up for that yet, but it's definitely on the roadmap. And uh, you know, we want the product to be something that you can use for a long time. And, and we didn't do this just to, you know, get it to die after a certain period and oblige you to buy another one. And here there is a blink to, to a few products that you can think of that behave in this way. So yeah, we're trying our best and, you know, we still have a long way to go, but we'll get there again. Do you have any uh, products that you're working on or features that you're, you're looking to implement to Rebo Bottle that you're particularly excited about? Yeah, I mean, there is, a, I think there's a long list, but so we're looking into improvement to the caps, first of all, just to make them work better, just solving a few minor issues that we've been seeing. We're working on something that can work better also with 
uh, sparkling products because a lot of durable bottles don't work properly with sparkling products. And so, so is ours because there's a flip cap. And in terms of the app, you know, we just implemented some cool features like find my bottle so that basically on your map, you're able to find the last location of your bottle in case, you know, you don't remember whether you forgot at home or in the office. We are looking also now into integrating within the app some cool stats on, uh, you know, how much water you've been drinking over the course of the past month, some cool graphs on uh, on your daily performance, and some badges as well, just to motivate you to, to keep on going back. And we're also, by the way, developing a, a nice solution for corporate partners. So, you know, companies that want to buy the product for their employees because it's a meaningful gift, it's touching on their wellness, it's touching on sustainability of the company. And we're creating a, a leaderboard. I mean, we've created it already, but a leaderboard where team members can compete on their plastic saving efforts. And, you know, you can set targets for teams to say, hey, I want my team to reach a thousand plastic bottles collected. And then you would have all the different people rally for that and, and be able to monitor the information on this leaderboard. And there's much more, but, you know, this is just to give you a bit of a sense. The find my bottle feature is going to be life-saving. I can't tell you how many times I've left my water bottle somewhere, you know, over the, the past decade and just, oh, that's it. There you go. You have to buy another one. That's insane. For anyone who wanted to start a business, would you have any, you know, specific advice, anything that you've experienced that has really helped, I guess, pave the way for your career? Yeah. So starting a business has been something that I wanted to do for a long time. And, you know, I was always looking for the right moment. And it's really hard to find that right moment. I think in my case, it was, a moment which was better than others, <laughs> but it's never perfect. And what I would recommend is, you know, try to look for, for that moment, but don't be discouraged if it never feels like you're finding the right moment because you will need a lot of, let's say, willingness to, to actually make the change from your comfortable corporate job or whatever is the previous experience. And then something important, I would say in my case, was not to be a solo founder. So I think being a solo founder, especially if you're bootstrapping, can be really, really hard from a mental standpoint, from a motivation standpoint, from a capability standpoint. So in my case, it was really important not to be alone in the tougher moments. And uh, on the other hand, if you're going with investors from the beginning, which is something that, that I can also recommend to some people you know, to kind of suffer less that motivation, I think some investors also would put that as a, as a restriction that they wouldn't want to give money to somebody who's a solo founder. And the last part is storytelling. I think storytelling for founders is really, really important. And, and I've realized how in our case, we started a business with a story around the product. And that story has been changing and has been evolving and has been growing. And some people that initially were not interested in what we were doing became interested all of a sudden because of the way the story changed. So being a good storyteller and understanding what people want to hear I think it's fundamental because your business at the beginning is really about you telling the story of what you're doing. And so if you're able to do that in the right way, that can be a big, big saver. I mean, a big help. Yeah. Having a solid why for what you're doing, I feel like is, you know, make or break. It's never been easier to start a business. And I think in 2010s, a lot of like white labeled businesses pop up and, you know, people just want to know that they're supporting something that they can uh, get behind. I think you're so right. I mean, the why is very, very important. I think it's becoming more important every day. And it's becoming more important for consumers to choose your brand over another one, but also becoming more important for investors that, you know, are looking into investing into much more mission-driven companies versus what they were looking into a few years back. 
Pierre, thank you so much for coming on to share a little bit more about Reboot Bottle, your experience, and just sharing some of the amazing things you're doing. For anyone who wants to find out more about Rebo Bottle, maybe pick one up for themselves, where would be the best place for them to head? So first of all, Matt, thank you so much for the invitation. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. It was good to share some, uh, you know, some of my experience with other people that are perhaps interested in doing something similar. And so if you want to find out more about Rebo, go on the website, which is www.rebo-bottle.com. And you're going to find a the product there. We've also created a discount code for anybody listening. And it's uh, the name of the podcast, which is Built on Passion, capital letters, one word, Built on Passion. And you're going to get a nice 20% discount if you are interested in giving a try to our bottle. So hope you will enjoy. And yeah, that's where you can find us. And we will link that code in the show notes. So check it out, guys. Awesome. Thanks so much, Pierre. Great. Thank you. We made it. Thank you again for tuning in to this week's episode of Built on Passion. Hope you learned something. Hope you maybe grew as a person. Maybe you have a new entrepreneurial idea. Maybe all of the above. Maybe you got a new perspective on your favorite hobby or favorite piece of gear and you just you fell in love all over again. I'm hoping for the last one. That last one actually sounds pretty good. I'm going to ask one last time for the people in the back. Please leave a review. It is super helpful and a great way to show your support of the show. And if you know someone who might be interested in this episode specifically, share it to them. And all joking aside, thank you for everything, for supporting what we're doing. In any event, that's it for now. I will see you next week on another episode of Built on Passion. <laughs>